Welcome to Precision Vision, where we work to unpack the ag tech tools of today and keep our sights on tomorrow. With your hosts, Craig Huyen and Morgan Sager. Welcome back to the Precision Vision podcast. I'm Morgan Sager. And I'm Craig Huyen. And today we're going to conclude our conversation we had with Matt Roberts here a couple weeks ago where we'll dive into the grain marketing components and uh, how to develop a marketing plan and manage your risk, uh, which is what uh, Matt's uh, specialty is, um, along with his other areas of interest that he spoke about last week. Hope you enjoy listening to this episode. I listened to you in Maui when uh-huh. you presented there as yep. probably like seven or eight years ago. Something like that, yeah. Um, and some of the things that you talked about there that I thought were interesting was around like, um, the family income and considering that when you're looking at, or like family expenses, yep. looking at farm income. And also I think you talked about like the disparity between the best marketers and the worst marketers. And I've used that to justify not putting up grain storage to my husband uh, ever since. So with the year that we've had being yep. very extreme in Ohio, like what can people expect going into fall? And now with the reports that came out this week, um, that maybe don't feel super realistic if you have an opinion on that yeah. um, and how people can kind of manage risk going into the fall, yep. basically. Yeah. Uh, one of the comments I got it this week from a grower was, it looks like we're going to have higher grain prices in the fall than what we have right now. So what does that mean for them? Do they put in a bin and wait? Um, I know a lot of grain bins got unlocked this spring when the yep. prices climbed up there after June 1, so there might be some extra space available on the farm to put it. So yep. I, I, those are some things I think about. I'm not a grain marketer. I don't profess to be. Um, there's a lot of it stuff that I just don't understand. Yep. But the simple things about unlocking grain bins makes perfect sense to me because the price has to be where they want it to be and not to be greedy. So um, I guess some of that expectations or what, what people can expect to see going into fall might be helpful for them as they make some plans. Um, what that ties into for me on a precision perspective is when people look at grain prices, now they're looking at what kind of investments can I make next year on equipment. Mm-hmm. Do I need to hold off on that planter investment and get the, the smart firmers and the, and the variable rate and the elect, you know, spend all this money on my equipment that I have now, or do I need to hold off another year? And, okay. and some, some guys are really on the fence about that right now. Well, and there's, there's an angle that's important. Now, I'll, I'll warn you, I'm a big, like, I tend to think most guys are over-invested in machinery, not mm-hmm. necessarily the oh, right no, machinery. I don't disagree, yeah. Um, and I'm really worried, and I hadn't thought about this, and it's one of these things you every now and then you hear things, and I kind of kick myself I hadn't thought about it because it seems obvious. Yeah. Is So let's think from a, a financial perspective about 2019, about the year that we're in. What we've had is we're going to have a lot of pre-plant, you know, particularly Northwest Ohio, you know, Northeast Indiana, that area, but really nationwide. We're going to have a lot of pre-plant acres, right? We're going to have a lot of, you throw that in, we're going to have um, MFP payments. We're going to have all these, think about our sources of revenue. Now, what's the cost associated with a, getting a pre-plant, an pre-plant acre plant. prevent plant, Yeah. right? Mm-hmm. There isn't any. What's the cost associated with an MFP? There isn't any. No. So we're going to have, particularly in Northwest Ohio, or they're the really hard hit areas. We're going to have a lot of guys with a lot of revenue with low expenses. Yeah. And so they're going to have a lot of taxable income. And we know farmers 
when they see taxable income, they're the first thing they're going to want to do is go out and blow it on machinery. Yeah. Okay. And the problem is that at the same time we're doing that, we're in year five of an agricultural recession where, you know, here at the Ohio Bankers League, one of the things we're all bankers are talking about, this is my fifth bankers meeting in the last four weeks, are worries about farmers who keep just pulling, uh, living on their equity, refinancing, terming out their operating debt that they can't cover, pulling out equity, um, you know, living off equity, burning down equity, and now we're sitting here looking at a year where they may be profitable, and the first thing they're going to do is go blow it on machinery that realistically 75% of them don't need. Yeah. Yeah. Just to save on taxes. Yeah, and we we had a similar conversation on, on machinery with Scott Shear from Ohio State. Yep. Here a few weeks ago, and and what that was is we have a lot of guys with multiple combines and really only need one or maybe two, depending. But we have bottlenecks in the grain handling from the field to the bin to the to market, and uh, oftentimes they run out of trucks. Well, they have two or three combines filling trucks, and then their dryer gets full, and they're only using two-thirds of the day instead of the full day because their dryer is full and uh, just a lot of logistic things that, that play into that and it all boils down to are they adequately staffed so to say on their yeah. equipment and uh, oftentimes they're over on equipment in in the wrong place now I do believe too that the reason that they're overstaffed on combines is because they want to get it out they want to get it out of the field and put it into the bin but there's too much logistics going on it's, that's conflicting with their ability to maximize their return on investment of that combine. Yep. And, and oftentimes the combine is the most inefficient piece of equipment from a financial perspective than any other piece of equipment they have on the farm. The cost of good or cost of the product itself and then the amount of usable life that they have with it through the calendar year. So it's kind of strange to think that's, that's how the dynamics work out. It is, and it's easy to pick on combines. And I, I'm, I'm going to step back, and I, I, I know Scott. I agree with everything he says on that because I agree. You know, you've got to think about this thing as a system, mm -hmm. right? Start to finish is critical. What I worry about in a year like this, where people are really worried about just basically spending money to avoid taxes, yeah. And what they have to realize is. Every dollar of every dollar they spend saves them about thirty cents. That's it. So they're wasting. They're spending a dollar to save thirty cents. Right. And so whether it's buying more equipment or just trading up in equipment, mm -hmm. the key point is this, and and the, and the repercussions throughout the farm, throughout the life cycle of the farmer, are huge. Uh, one of the other things we don't talk a lot about, about farmers really working hard to minimize their taxable income. And don't get me wrong. Like, I don't like paying taxes either, right? right. I'm, I, I have three businesses. Uh, I am self-employed in all three of them. Uh, I pay an accountant and an attorney a lot of money to, to try and keep my taxes as low as possible. But I make my business decisions and I make my investment decisions based on trying to become wealthy or build my balance sheet. And then I structure them as efficiently as possible for taxes, okay. right? I don't go out and make decisions just to minimize my taxes. Okay. And another reason for farmers, this is particularly important, and we've seen this in a, in a couple ways. When farmers spend so much time and effort trying to uh, 
uh, make investment decisions to reduce their taxable income. Two things they don't think about. Uh, the first is what does that do to their retirement? What's that do to Social Security? You don't pay into Social Security. And that means come retirement, you don't have that steady income. Now, you may say, I've got all this land, I've got all this, but you've got to realize you're getting rid of one of the typical legs of the stool of retirement in this country, yeah. Social Security. Not a huge leg, but an important leg. The second one is there have actually been multiple lawsuits in the last few years where farmers injured in some sort of a, an accident having nothing to do with agriculture, maybe they're in a car wreck, and they go to sue for lost wages or lost income. They and don't have much. They have no income. Yeah. And so you go to a court, you go to court, and they say, all right, well, what's your lost income? And you, they say, show us your tax returns. And you show them five years of tax returns that you earned zero over the last five years. The court has no ability to award damages to you for that lost income. Yeah. So, again, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot, a really big picture. But the real fundamental is, the goal of any business is to build the value of your balance sheet. And going out and buying equipment just to reduce your taxable income is never a good decision. And this year, sadly, the way that this weather is going to work out, the MFPs, all of this stuff is going to work out, and the low expenses, because seed's not there, mm -hmm. fertilizer's not there, field work. Yeah. Their labor is not there. Labor's not there. They're not gonna they're gonna have a lot, potentially a lot of taxable income. And sadly in farm country that leads to a lot of really bad financial decisions. What what are some things a grower can do to that's not traditional? Because I, I think a lot of guys look at the equipment opportunity as, as something they've historically done. You know? Sure. So what are some non traditional methods of moving money around so that maybe not reduce your taxable income, but protect it long-term. Well, and I'm okay, again, with reducing taxable income as long as you're not having to make fundamental business decisions to do it. So historically in ag, the way we tend to do that, there's a couple pieces uh, that are not fundamental business decisions, I would argue. Uh, the joys of ag is we're almost all cash um, accounting, we still get to use cash basis accounting. So that means prepaying inputs historically is the cheapest way to um, really manage that. You can, you can pull expenses from next year into this year. Uh -huh. Now, 2019 makes that a little hard because if anything, most guys are sitting on fertilizer. They're sitting on seed. It's hard for them to want to go ahead in December and buy prepay for seed and fertilizer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. Shifting sales into the following year. Um, shifting sales into the following year. So, Morgan, yes. you don't have storage. Correct. Okay. So there's the ways you can do this, one, if you have storage, you put it in the bin. Uh, you don't have to recognize that as income, right, right until the following year. So storage is a benefit there. If you don't have storage, you can just do deferred payment right you sell it to a co-op you sell yeah. it wait take the payment after turn of the year that defers that income again you're a little more limited in what you can do there but it's another tool yeah but the biggest tool and this is not a popular thing to say the biggest tool to managing your taxes is don't you know try to work around it but if you have to pay taxes 
That's just the cost of it. And it's much cheaper to go ahead and pay that 30 cents on the dollar in taxes than it is to pay that effectively um, to pay that dollar or really three dollars to John Deere to save a dollar in taxes. And that's the key mess. That's the most important message. What can you do? Sure. Uh, Play with your inputs. Shift around some revenue. Uh, Shift around some expenses. Sure, you can do these things. If you have a piece of equipment that really needs replaced, do it. Yeah. But as I like to point out, so as you guys know, you've heard me speak. Um, I don't. I didn't come from a farm background. My granddad founded a Chevy dealership in 1928. That's what I grew up on. Okay. You know, modern pickup trucks sometimes last three or even four years. Okay. A two-year-old pickup truck does not need replaced. <laughs> okay. Uh, we've got. You know, my. Family Suburban. We had a Family Suburban. We just sold it last year. It was a 2001 with 285,000 miles on it. And I know who bought it, and it is still running strong. Okay? It will continue to go. Think about this. And in tight times, and again, when I'm at these bankers' meetings, these are tight times. There's a lot of worry out there, and it's not obvious to me things are going to magically get better. So I would argue build that balance sheet, build that cash, and if that means you pay a little taxes, I guarantee you when it comes time to talk to the banker, your banker's going to pat you on the back for paying those taxes. They're not going to look badly, as weird as that sounds. To your point that we were talking about showing a zero balance, um, I don't know if you've read through Elizabeth Warren's new farm plan proposal, but a a highlighting point that... that, in my opinion, made it feel like why she was driving this is because American farmers have shown a negative return for however many years yep. consistently. So she was using that as grounds to needing reform. Um, yep. So I think there are other implications that we're maybe not thinking about. We may be calling for help from a place we don't necessarily want it if we continue to show that we need help. That is fascinating. I had not stopped to think about, that's a great observation, the interaction of tax returns and taxable income uh, with kind of the policy-making process. But you're exactly right. And zero income. And 100 years ago, when we look at the populism, the prairie populism, um, that was driven by low farm incomes. But Mm -hmm. low farm incomes in the early 20th century mean a very different thing than low farm incomes in the early 21st. Mm-hmm. Right um, now, I'm I'm a little more cynical. I think uh, Warren and Sanders' proposal has a lot of commonalities. Um, I think it is much more a bald-faced populist attempt at prying rural votes away from the GOP. Yeah. Um, will it work? Will it not? I think that's going to be a great, very interesting test. Um, 15 years ago, particularly the upper Midwest, particularly look at Dakotas, Minnesota, Wisconsin, the bastions of prairie populism, they still were much more sympathetic both to a much more managed market as well as um, much more, yeah, interventionist government and to, to for that reason, uh, Democratic candidates. Okay. Now, I believe in the last five to seven years, that's really changed, or ten years. Yeah. But it will be interesting now to see how those proposals do play. Mm-hmm. Um, do play on the you know in in farm community. But I hadn't thought about it from a farm income standpoint and an IRS records. It's a good good observation. Yeah. 
Good job, Morgan. That was a good idea. You brought that up last night on in a phone call, and I was like, so I did look it up, and it's, it's the same. I didn't pull what you thought of out, but what you were saying about uh, breaking things apart and, and make it a little bit easier on the farmers, it, uh, I was a little skeptical on what she was saying, but um, I tend to be. So I, I just... Uh, <laughs> No. I'm very skeptical. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not saying at all it's a good idea economically. Right. I mean, but she's a politician. So right. it's, we, we all know that, you know, being like economically sound and prudent is a horrible idea as a politician. <laughs> it's all about who are you going to take from and who are you going to give to and, and yeah. trying to, you know. And get reelected. And get re Yeah. Yep. I mean, that's, that's both parties right now. That's right. Uh, everybody wants a government that is you know, spends less on things that they don't like. Right. Now, something else that's new to the news or new in the news is um, the grain report that came out on Monday Yep. and surprised a lot of people. Um, and like I, I said in conversation earlier, I'm not, I don't know a lot about grain marketing. I'm not a lot of background in that piece of it. I understand what unlocks the grain bins. I understand why people put grain in grain bins, but but from your perspective and your understanding of what the grain markets are, what, what's your interpretation of what the, the USDA came out with? And what are some impacts that are going to take place through the fall with regards to what the report said on Monday? So the first thing to realize is, and, and, and you know, USDA is kind of this very popular whipping boy, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't matter what they do, everybody hates them. Yeah. Um, Great target for conspiracy theories. I know most of the people who put those reports together. And I will tell you, they are the most straight up, straight down the middle, um, least corrupt people in the universe. Okay. Okay. This is them doing their best, trying to provide a service to the market. And honest to goodness, I will bet, I will bet my Miata on that. Um, <laughs> So they're not in cahoots with the insurance companies trying to lower the payments. insurance companies or even Congress. <laughs> I mean, this is it can be insurance companies lowering payments. It's Congress for cheap food. It's this. It's that. It's not. It's the board. It's the trading companies, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, which what what's really important is understanding what the limitations are of their of what they're doing and their methodology and putting that in context of any methodology, right? So the grain reports that came out, the big numbers are acreage, mm -hmm. all right, um, and their yield projection. Yeah. So let me break those apart. On the acreage side, uh, when they do their surveys, and so a lot of people be like, ah, oh, why don't they use satellites? Why don't they use this? Why don't they use that? They do. Yeah. Okay, they're smart people. They have more data. The key thing to realize is when they do those reports, they have more data than Grow Intelligence, uh, Informa, um, you know, whoever, Pro Farmer combined. Okay. Okay. They are taking samples in uh, over a thousand locations to make these. Um, it is an extremely good and valid method, but it's still a sampling method. Yeah. Okay? So, a uh, couple of the common questions. Why don't FSA numbers and NAS numbers line up? If you look right now at uh, NAT, the numbers that came out in those reports, mm -hmm. uh, both of planted acres and all of this, they're, they're significantly higher uh, than the, the FSA numbers that also have come out. Okay. First thing is, as, as weird as this is to believe in the Corn Belt, it is true, 
not all farmers participate in FSA programs. Right. NASA's job is to measure or to attempt to measure all acres. Not FSAs. FSAs, this is how many acres participate. Okay. okay. So there's a gap. The other thing is NASA is trying to guess at what the final number, the actual numbers harvested planted. All FSA is reporting is here's the reports we have so far. Okay. So you're going to have a gap. And typically they converge until around December. And then the gap that is left is that non-participant. Okay. Right. And NASA is... As, as they, they can look over history and say, this is what we think. Now, the acreage numbers are weird. The one place I think their methodology, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to say their methodology is wrong, but it may not be suited for this year. Okay. We have to realize, we have to remember, this year is, it's not that it's a weird year. It's not that it's abnormal. It's unprecedented. Okay. And the reason is, if you go back to 93, 94, so I was living in Kansas City, I was three miles from the Missouri River in 93, 94. 93, 94, the flooding was caused by really heavy snowpack in the upper Midwest, a rapid warming, and a big rain system that settled in in like May. Okay. Okay. Radically, so you had a lot of flooding, but the flooding was, typically, was almost all in 100 and 500 year floodplains. When did the precipitation, you're, you're on the agronomy side, right, mm -hmm. Craig? When did the precipitation start? This year? This year. It was in April, first part of May. I'd argue it started last October or September. No, that's a good point. You're right. Right? Think about field work last fall. Yeah, that's right. How many right. guys had trouble getting their harvest out, getting their field work in? Yeah. We never dried out at all. That's right. We've been wet since last October, except for this last few weeks where it started to dry out. Right. So the reason this matters is in 93, 94, a lot of that flooding was in floodplains. Mm -hmm. A lot of that prevented plant was in floodplains. Yep. This year, it's random field driving along, you know, Highway 4 in Northwest Ohio going, well, I've been driving 20 miles and I've seen five fields yep. that are planted. No, that's right. Because it's, it's this very broad-based rain precipitation-driven flooding mm -hmm. for eight months. Yeah. And so I think that like anything, when you get a big enough outlier in your data set, your predictive model can't handle it. Right. So one of the things that I think we will see as we go through the year, we're going to see that harvested number decline. Because right now what the USDA number is using right there, that 9 million difference in acres, is not very, it's not that abnormal. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see that come down particularly because silage, that's normally silage. Yeah. And I think we have a lot of corn that's going to become silage yeah. Yeah. in a normal frost year. Right. If we get an early frost or really even an average frost. We're going to be hurt. It's going to really hurt, right? Yeah. So that's the first thing. Yields, um, again, USDA has the most comprehensive sampling model of anybody. That's the number they came out with. But I would also argue, I mean, how, how late would you say our harvest is running? For the fields that are out there and have stands, how late would you say we're running maturity-wise? It's going to be end of September, first part of October before we reach black layer this year in a lot of the fields in Ohio that we look at. So we're looking at a harvest that won't start until mid-October and go all the way out till Thanksgiving, the way it's looking right now. So 30, 40, 30, 30 days. 40 days, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. I don't... 
Ohio's the worst, but I, you go to Illinois, I don't think it's that much no. earlier. It's the, the, the thing that we're seeing right now is we've got adequate soil moisture up until your point until the last couple of weeks, and that's really when it started to dry off. And I've, I've been working um, this morning on trying to dive into a few fields for a particular grower, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering where his yield went, and because uh, he's management is very similar to what he does any other year. It's changed a little bit because of the weather that we had this year, yep. but um, his yields are not looking very good, and, and we're seeing soil moisture is just dropping really hard. And, I mean, what from what you've seen, what do you think on root formation? Terrible. Because it, it had no need to move. It had no need to grow because it had adequate soil moisture. Nutrients are right there. We had a little cooler uh, start this year, mm-hmm. than what, especially over what we had in 2018 and 2017 also where it was a little bit cooler growing season starting off and everything grew slow yeah but the roots weren't really taken off too much and a lot of the root mass photos i've seen this year are pretty small um so that's a concern and it, and then when we get into a stress point we're already past um brown silk so the plant's not growing right now it's it's putting its energy into the kernels right now yep and now we're getting into that stress so when I look back, I see a combination of years of 2011-2012 right now. Because in 2011, we were wet, 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 all winter long. And, and to your point, and I had a brain fart there for a moment when I said April, end of April. But yeah, the last fall for sure, and, and the talk we had with, with the climate, um, climate Smart meeting that we had, that's what they've been talking about is the extremely wet fall we had going into winter and then spring. In 2011, we had an extremely wet fall in 2010, went all winter long. July, it stopped raining, yep. and it got hotter than Billy Blaze that year, and we actually got a really good crop. But then, 2012, it was really, really dry, Yeah. and I'm fearful that that same pattern will repeat itself. I think that's, and I think that's an entirely legitimate concern and reasonable concern, um, and that's and so going back to USDA, all those things, you know, so that August 12th, between the 9th and 12th crop report every year is trying to estimate final yield based on conditions on August 1st. Mm-hmm. Well, if we're 30 days behind, we're not actually estimating using August 1st. We're using more like July 1st data. Mm-hmm. And as you well know, July kind of matters for corn <laughs> yield, Right. <laughs> Matters an awful lot. For and, and if you think for, for beans, you yeah. know, the difference between even August 1, we're still scratching our heads a lot, yeah. right, on beans on August 1. Well, now we're doing that on July 1. Yeah. So I think there's a, a lot more variability left. And that's not me questioning their model. Their model is what it is. And in, and in, in you know, 19 out of 20, 29 out of 30 years, it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. But when you have something like this, and again, the, the, the breadth and the intensity of the flooding that we had this year, I, I can't find any analog year. I can right. find some that, are, that attempt to be, mm-hmm. right? So we're outside kind of that normal bounds. Yeah. So when I look at the USDA report, there's big question marks. Now, does that mean I think it's too high, too low. I think we just don't know enough. There's a lot more variability left this year than there normally is. Uh And there's a lot. Now, key things also to remember, though, anytime we talk about models, um, people have a recency and a myopia bias, okay? Um, 
farmers, a lot of the farmers, particularly where we work, they think, you know, the reason they think the USDA is in cahoots with, with everybody and anybody short of like Vladimir Putin is, and some probably think that, uh, is because they look at their fields and like, how can we have 169? We're always overly influenced by our immediate surroundings. That's, That's right. human nature. There are areas that actually do look good, even in Ohio. You know, I'm talking to, to some agents, county agents from South Central Ohio. Their guys are looking great. They're going to have a great year. Yeah. There are places like that. Mm-hmm. I will admit I'm also influenced. It's hard for me to believe that number. But I also know over time the USDA has been uh, the has as I like to say has sucked less than anybody else. If okay. I can use the term "sucked," <laughs> um, less than anybody else doesn't mean they're right. But nobody else right. has consistently been better, and right. that's key. Yeah. Um, so, what does that mean from a practical standpoint? Right, the first thing and the most important thing I want growers to take away from this, particularly this past week or two. Friday before the reports, you know, everybody was talking about, um, gosh, you know, I wish I hadn't sold as much as I did. These price, we're going to $6 corn. I wish I had this back. Should I be buying it back? I saw marketing places that the two weeks leading up, marketing firms, the two weeks leading up to the report, yeah. were telling guys to buy, buy positions back, buy hedges back, 410, get ready for that next leg higher. Report comes out, suddenly everybody's like, I should have sold way more earlier. I wish I'd done it. Here's the thing. A marketing plan, first rule, marketing plan should not be based on the markets. Okay? A marketing plan should be based on your farm's finances. Right? Why? I don't know where the markets are going. Your market advisor doesn't know where the markets are going. Nobody knows where the markets are going. And if they do, they're not selling it to you for a penny a bushel. And they're not still living, you know, anywhere we live. Right. Right? Okay. If I knew where the markets were going, I'm not sitting in Columbus, Ohio on August 15th. Right. I'm going to be in my Swiss chalet. <laughs> all right. Looking at the beautiful mountains and, you know, drinking a really nice bourbon about yeah. this time. You've got to build a plan that is very structured. And it gives you lots of time to let the market volatility work towards you. That okay. means right now what growers should be doing, first and foremost, I would argue, they need to be drawing up their 2020 marketing plan. Right. August 19, draw it up, come up with your selling prices, your selling targets, you call your broker, your elevator, and you put them in now. Okay. Okay? Most farms should have between a quarter and a third of their APH sold by the time they start planting next year. Depending on your balance sheet, maybe half of your APH sold at planting. And putting those orders in now, scale up orders, some of them kind of high. Putting those orders in now in August means you have eight months for the market volatility to hit those. Yeah. Let that work for you, okay? That's the first thing. And I can talk about that forever, way longer than your podcast. When we talk about those unpriced bushels, First thing guys have to realize is anytime prices start going up, there's going to be a story why they should go up more. If prices go from here to $4, of course there's a story they go to $4.25. Mm-hmm. And it's that story that normally keeps guys from marketing. Okay. We don't get to 4 without a story of 
what people have to do this year, the remainder, of the, certainly through the fall, if you're sitting on way too many bushels, and right now we still also don't know that real well, but if you're sitting on way too many bushels, when you see opportunities to market, you need to be selling, particularly on beans. Okay. You do not want to be carrying beans into 2020. Okay. It's why South America is going to plant a squillion acres of beans this yeah. fall. Um, we don't want to compete with that. Trade worry is still out there. Who knows? But my betting is trade, the earliest trade gets resolved with China is Labor Day 2020. Okay. Going into the election. All right. Um, and, and I'm not saying it'll be resolved by then, but I don't think it gets done before then. Yeah. Um, so beans, we're going to be aggressive. Corn, again, if you get a rally, start selling. Put those prices in. Figure out what prices you're willing to sell at and put those orders in. Because the other thing that hopefully guys realize after the last eight months, a lot of the motion is happening at night, particularly in beans. It's in those overnight markets. You're not going to hit. Get those orders in and leave them. Okay. What are we going to see on prices? I do think particularly we're going to see harvested acres decline. I think we're going to see yield decline through the rest of the fall. Yeah. I think the market does not want to be real generous in pushing yield estimates up and pricing that because the last five years, the market has said, these conditions are horrible. Yeah. We're going to have low yields. Boom. Record mm -hmm. year after year after year. Yeah. So the market wants to see proof. Okay. So we're going to be weak the next, I think two months, unless we get a frost until combines start rolling. Yeah. I would expect to see prices go up. Not to six bucks, not to five bucks. 35, 40, 50 cents higher on the flat price. Okay. Okay. Not these huge moves that a lot of people are prognosticating. I think the reason they prognosticate six dollar corn, five dollar corn, that's a great way to get subscribers. Yeah. I'll it's be just, honest. That's a good story, too. It's a great story. <laughs> it's a great story. Yeah. If it's also I, a good reason for us to justify not having sold yet. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, you know, nothing makes us feel better than validating right. our decisions. Right. Yeah, but history tells us. I mean, could it happen? Yeah. If you're really worried about missing a move to five dollars, sell and then buy a four fifty call, a four seventy call. Okay? okay, you're going to pay a couple of pennies for it, and if we move to five or to six dollars, you're going to be able to hear. It's going to sound like a lottery ticket okay. cashing. Probably you're not. Probably it's going to expire worthless and you're out of nickel. But if being out of nickel causes you to sell at three ninety five instead of waiting for a four twenty five that never comes, right. you're better off. Yeah, right. good point. And that's I, you know, and the other thing, real quickly on the marketing plan. So when you go to a doctor, you go to a new doctor for the first time. Okay, what do they do? They always start with medical history. Yeah. Right before they get into where you're at now. For some reason, people don't think about marketing plans like that. But my belief is, if a marketing plan is truly about risk management, then a marketing plan has to start with um, your cost of production, how much working capital you have, and how much equity you have. Okay. Why? Because cost of production determines profitability. Working capital and equity determine how much risk you can afford to take. Okay. And if your marketer hasn't asked those things, you're not getting a marketing plan that, that's custom made. 
you're getting something that they're pulling off the shelf and just selling you. Okay. A real risk plan has to do has to start with how much risk you can afford. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, you know, that's where marketing plans start. And if your marketer's not doing that, if they're not tailoring it to you, they're not they don't have your best interests at heart. Okay. Well, I feel like that's a really like tactical advice yeah. that our audience can use. So I appreciate you going through the marketing plan piece. Because you, you touched on uh, the, the trade policy with, with uh, or trade negotiations with China. Sure. That we're in the middle. And you, you predict out that it'll be Labor Day 2020 before we see anything. I heard a rumor earlier this week that, and it, it came through a farmer, and I've been trying to find the source of this, but I haven't found it yet. Uh, most everything I have read lines up pretty close with what you said, but I was told that China was going to hold off on signing any deal until after the 2020 election in case Trump gets voted out. Um, so this is, I, so I don't think China, you know, they're not going to say this. Right. They're going to try to negotiate just as anybody will in any negotiate, the best deal for them. Mm-hmm. But they have leverage over Trump because Trump faces a ballot box. Right. Right, 15 months from now. Yeah. So I wouldn't say that it, it doesn't happen after the election. But China has the ability to wait it out. Yeah. Trump may not. And that's why I don't think we see a deal get done until we're in the thick of election season. Okay? Because China knows they can sit back. Yeah. 90%, almost anybody who gets elected to that position, um, other than, than the president, realizes that these his trade policy has been very harmful to the U.S. economy. Um, if you are the U.S. president, kind of your first rule is don't screw up the economy. Right. And the reality is on trade negotiations, he's probably cost this trade war. He's probably cost the U.S. half a percent in GDP growth. Okay. Um, he's costed a lot of money. Um, and, and this is not, I mean, ag, ag piece of that's tiny. Yeah. Broad economy, he's cost it. So they realize almost anybody who gets elected um, is going to be easier to deal with. So they have leverage. They have an option. Uh-huh. Do I think they realize it? Oh, they definitely realize it. Do I think that means there's no way that they would sign an agreement before the election? No, I think they'd sign it. But the closer we get to the election, particularly if his polls continue to weaken, the more and more leverage they know that they have. I see. Makes sense. And, and so then the question is, how far will this administration backtrack? I see. And we saw this week, you know, we saw the crop report. I would argue to the just as important to agriculture, maybe more important, was we saw the Trump administration backtrack on tariffs. Yeah. For a very interesting reason. The, the Christmas right? holiday season. Christmas holiday season. Yeah. Which is, by the way, to an economist, that's an admission of who's paying the tariffs. Right. The, the U.S. American consumer. American consumer is paying yeah. the tariffs. Because if China's paying the tariffs, why, do we, why are we going to hold them off past mm-hmm. Christmas? That's right. Right? So that's the first real capitulation on trade by this administration. Okay. And it's the first recognition that consumers might not be as happy with this trade war as as the administration would have us believe. Okay. 
So what happens over the next 12 months? Mm -hmm. But that's why I don't think we see resolution until we get into it. Um, because I don't think China is going to take, is going to sign on to the agreements as they're being proposed. I see. Um, I think they want to, they want to, they think they can get a better deal than what's currently on the table. And they have the ability to wait because our president faces a ballot box November 4th, 2020. President Xi never faces a ballot box. I see. And that's, that's leverage. Yeah. Good point. Thank you. That was good information. Well, it was a lot of fun sitting down with Matt. He gave us a lot of time, and I think that the insights that he was able to share with us were really valuable. And, and like you said, he's coming at it from a really interesting perspective with his history, you know, looking at the car dealership and how it ties into everything else that we're doing. Um, I would encourage you to follow him on Twitter. He's very vocal. He has some strong opinions, but very entertaining to follow and also very informative. Yeah, and certainly hope you do follow him uh, for his insights and, and his perspective because uh, it was a very interesting and entertaining conversation that we had with Matt and uh, certainly hope you felt the same way. So until next time, this has been the Precision Vision Podcast, Inside the Boundary and Out of the Box. Thanks for tuning in to the Precision Vision Podcast with your hosts, Craig Huyen and Morgan Sager.